Good afternoon. My guest today is Professor Gigi Foster, a brilliant academic and economist based at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. Educated at Yale and Maryland University, a regular panelist on the ABC and the host of her own podcast, The Economist with Peter Martin on ABC Radio. Professor Foster was named Young Economist of the Year in 2019 by the Economic Society of Australia and caused a meltdown in the media after her appearance on Q&A in July 2020, when she criticised the brutal COVID zero approach taken in Australia in an effort to curb the spread of the virus. Author of numerous academic journal articles and a number of books, including most recently in 2021, The Great COVID Panic, What Happened, Why and What to Do Next, and in 2022, Do Lockdowns and Border Closures Serve the Greater Good? A Cost-Benefit Analysis of Australia's Reaction to COVID-19. Professor Foster, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Victor, and thanks for such a kind introduction. Thank you for joining me. I really do appreciate it very much. Um, so um, I've invited you on to talk uh, today uh, following your appearances on the ABC initially just for that July episode but when I did my research I realized you were also on there in April and subsequently as well and but um, we're really talking about the infamous July 27th episode um, which ironically was titled um, the fight of our lives which resulted in the considerable backlash so um, what I thought I would do just because it has been a little bit of time is um, just to put your appearance uh, into the larger pandemic context in Australia in 2020. Um, as I said, well, it's been less than three years, bizarrely or perhaps by design, um, the harshest of the government mandate lockdowns and extreme pandemic measures seem to already be slipping from the collective Australian memory. Uh, so just to remind everyone what was going on at that time, because it was, um, so COVID arrived in Australia on the 25th of Jan, in 2020, um, all of the subsequent dates of 2020, um, and arrived directly from Wuhan into Victoria. A human biosecurity emergency was declared on the 18th of March. Australian borders were closed to non-residents on the 20th of March. Um, the Australian states and territories were closing their borders to each other. Social distancing rules uh, were introduced on the 21st of March and state government started to close all non-essential services and businesses around that same time. Um, returning to Australia, um, residents were required to spend two weeks in quarantine, um, largely in hotels, and that was a directive from the 27th of March. The first wave of infection, which in hindsight was quite small, occurred between March, April, um, and in July, we were kind of in the middle of a second wave, which was largely concentrated in Victoria. Um, and it was during these early stages that, well, pretty much from the outset, to be fair, that the zero COVID policy was um, commencing across Australia um, with rules that would be enforced by the army and all levels of the police force. It was amongst this hysteria, my, my, my opinion, <laughs> that Professor Gigi Foster decided to go on to Q&A on the ABC, a program which, again, my opinion, um, is arguably one of the most woke and hypersensitive audiences across Australian programming. And you said what exactly? <laughs> uh, well, to be honest with you, I, I said basically the same thing that I had said previously in April of uh, 2020 when I was on mm -hmm. Q&A and previous to that in late March 2020, when on my radio program, The Economists with Peter Martin, 
I basically said that I'd looked at the data and this virus looked like it was mainly dangerous to the elderly. So our best response, rather than a wholesale lockdown, was to aggressively protect the elderly and to let everybody else go back to work and to the pub. And this initial proclamation against lockdowns, if you will, which was, by the way, unannounced to my producer or to my co-host, and so took them a bit by surprise. This prompted the ABC audience, the Radio National audience, to respond back to the ABC saying this woman was a danger to public health, that is me, and should be taken off the air and she should retract her statements and all this sort of thing. So this immediately made me think that something was rotten in Denmark because I was looking at the data. We, we had data on this thing. It wasn't like somehow we didn't know or you couldn't have known. There were certainly some scary images that had been coming through from China and Milan, New York and, and these places, and people had gotten very scared. But if you looked at the actual data on the, the death rates and who was being affected mainly, um, this was not by any stretch of the imagination, the Black Plague or even the 1918 flu. This was a, a kind of nasty virus that was of a similar class of virus that we already had experienced before. I think this is about the fifth coronavirus that humanity has tackled. Uh, and and we had had respiratory pandemics in the past. And this one was attacking mainly the elderly and infirm. And so it seemed very clear to me that if we if we targeted those people, if we targeted those who are really vulnerable, we would get a better outcome than than imposing huge costs on everybody else. And and in particular, that that imposition of huge costs was not going to be without collateral damage onto Australia's overall health, wealth, and ability to continue to fight COVID, as well as fight any other kind of health threat and provide for the length and quality of life of of our citizens. So in April, I on Q and A, I said basically that. And then again, on, in July, I said basically the same thing. And the general reaction in both cases was that I was obviously being a heartless granny killer um, mm -hmm. because of the fact that people were focused solely on the asserted benefits of lockdowns. So they, they were focused on what the media were telling them was the reason we were all making these huge sacrifices, which was in order to save grandma, right? Which was, by the way, implicitly admitting that it was the grandparents, the grandparents cohort who were mainly at risk, but this notion that somehow they their lives weren't worth it. That was what what I was essentially kind of pigeonholed as, as had been said both times on Q&A. And so what was what was conspicuously lacking was any real engagement with the costs of our lockdown policies. You know, there was only a, a, a kind of focus on the benefits and very much on on canceling or discrediting those who uh, would try to bring up the costs or try to have a more reasoned discussion that said that maybe there was a limit uh, to the price that we should pay to try to save the lives that otherwise would potentially be lost to COVID. And indeed, you couldn't even talk at all about the fact that lockdowns had never been a proven strategy. We would never use lockdowns for wholesale, you know, healthy populations as a, a part of a strategy to, uh, to, uh, to address a respiratory pandemic. I mean, they're not even used for Ebola, for heaven's sakes. So, you know, it, it just was nuts that we were even considering this. And I, at the time, had not done as much research as, of course, I now have on previous plans to deal with pandemics. But before 2020, we had such plans, as, as became obvious to me as I did more research into this, and including in Australia. And wholesale lockdowns of healthy people were simply never on the table because they were known to be too costly. 
So, you know, so that was the environment and that was the kind of reaction that I got, which again, you know, in my mind triggered the, uh, the realization that something very, very wrong was going on. And that was really one of the main reasons that I ended up spending so much time writing those two books that you mentioned in the introduction, because I felt I had to, to write down a different perspective. I had to analyze this as a social scientist and one who was supported by the taxpayers of Australia. Yeah. And you bring up an important point there that we had just recently had well, in the last 20 years, we had the SARS um, outbreak, which was um, the bird flu. Um, we also had swine flu. And then there was MERS, which was actually quite quite a serious one. Um, I guess the main difference between, uh, you could argue between those three and this one was that those three predominantly affected Asia and the Middle East and weren't in the, the Western nations. The other thing that I noted down while you were talking there is just the, the idea that there was early research available as early as April 2020 um, pointing to um, who this was going to affect and alternative options for how we can deal with this. So, yes, in I mean, fact, it's even a, earlier, March, March 2020, or even February, if you were looking for the data, it was there. Uh, it was just that it was not something that would come up on the front page news. So, so the standard guy in the street was seeing the, the scary videos from, from China and the actual data scientists, including people in, within the governments of Australia and elsewhere, were able to access these data. And before mid-March, they were saying sensible things about how to handle COVID. It was only after mid-March that everything started to shift. So, yeah. so that's an interesting component of this whole, uh, this whole saga. Yeah, well, to, to link in with that, um, when again, while I was doing research for today, I found a report from CNN um, around that same period talking about the success of the Swedish model, which seems extraordinary in today's age when you, you consider about how, how that, that network in particular has dealt with. Um, that. So something has definitely shifted. Um, I felt like it shifted between uh, your um, April um appearance and the july appearance and i it, it has to as far as i can tell you can only put it down to politics um it, it was a shift in politics um so i had a question here to ask you about um how you managed to stay calm rational and objective in the mm -hmm. face of um literally politicians screaming that the sky was falling in um but you you've kind of answered that because you had access and the data was available Right. Absolutely. And it wasn't that I was in some privileged position that no. you know, only some people could access these data. I mean, if you looked for it, you could absolutely find it. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't somehow using my status as a professor to access databases that weren't available to other people. This was something you could see. I think Worldometer might have been up by then. And, um, you know, there were there were simply, you know, there were people like John Ioannidis at Stanford who were doing good, good uh, research on sort of the likely infection fatality rate. Uh, which is very different, by the way, from the case fatality rate, and and that difference difference was completely obscured in in the media coverage. And 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 you're right. I mean, the reason why it was so easy to keep my cool, I guess, uh, was that it was just so obviously clear to me that the politicians were wrong. Mm. And, and you know, if I'm if I'm I've never been so sure of anything in my life that you know that this was the wrong response. And the fact that we couldn't even talk about it was a signal that it wasn't public health that was being pursued. Because if it's public health, 
then you know you want all the perspective best all ideas on the table right and you want to be weighing up the costs and benefits in terms of health we know that the economy feeds into our ability to promote health so economic costs should matter for that as well and when you lock people in their homes you are causing damage to them right there because you're preventing them from getting a lot of the inputs that we need as human beings to be mentally healthy and physically healthy for that matter so you know i knew that it was it was just so clear that as you say this was all about politics and i think the change that you perceived between April and July was mainly that science became captured fully and the politicians just really doubled down on this whole lockdown strategy because by that point, they had locked themselves in, particularly in Australia, to the narrative that they were the saviors of the people from the threat of COVID and they couldn't do anything else. They, they felt politically unable to take a different line without being absolutely pilloried and losing their seats. And, and so really the crucial decision was made politically in late March, because that was the decision, you know, to really go down this lockdown path and this zero COVID path. That was the decision that locked in politicians uh, later on, even if they really had wanted to do something different, they wouldn't have been able to. I, I'm smiling because that's, that's actually a point that I've got here. So I feel like the politicians, rather than leading with what we're traditionally seeing, um, strength and resolve, they whipped the fear up and mm -hmm. then realize the mess that they created. And there's, there's just no backing down once you've done that. Um, That's precisely right. And that also set us up for the, the vaccine hero story uh, a couple of years later, which was we had been keep keeping ourselves locked away. We kept COVID out supposedly through all of our actions, you know, forget about whether there was anything to do with our geography or our demography in terms of our death rates. And so now we needed a reason. The politicians needed a big reason that they could depart from that prior strategy. The vaccines were a big reason. So they went for that. And in the process, they suppressed early treatments. They, again, continued to censor anybody who would talk against the strategy of mass vaccination. Um, and, and so they basically did not pursue public health. They pursued public damage uh, because of their own career desires. So, so that's what happened. And I think the evidence of that as we moved forward is the, the radio silence on um, and, and COVID just very quietly and very quickly just disappearing from the headlines because the savior story hasn't actually worked out as it should. And, Precisely. I, and, and, and not to bring alarm back, but it seems like in 2022 and 20, the starting of 2023, we're seeing more deaths than what we saw um, during the, the supposed peak of um, the virus. So Definitely. And, and those yeah. deaths are not just COVID deaths. Um, we have yeah, some, was... some good analysis out that uh, is soon going to be put up on the Australians for Science and Freedom website, which your listeners might be interested in, scienceandfreedom.org. I announced it on Q&A last week on the 13th of March. Um, yeah. Some analysis by a biostatistician, uh, very, very uh, competent, very good uh, thinker named David Richards, uh, basically asking that question, where are these excess deaths that we've seen since about the middle of 2021 coming from? And it's not just deaths with COVID. Some of it is, is deaths with COVID for sure. But, but then there's a large kind of unexplained component, particularly when you think about classification of death being really a, a, a kind of difficult, it's not a, not a black and white kind of job at all, right? Some people who die of COVID uh, really died of COVID and some you know, are classified as such, but they did die of something else, right? So there's two big possibilities to explain those additional excess deaths that aren't due to just COVID. One of them is delayed lockdown deaths. So mm -hmm. people who got injured in some way during lockdowns, mental health damage, physical health damage, missed cancer screenings, whatever, and now they're dying, right? And they wouldn't have if they hadn't had to go through lockdowns. But the second one, of course, is vaccine side effects. 
Mm. Again, it's very difficult to talk about those, particularly difficult to talk about the vaccine side effects, again, because the politicians have hitched their horses to this story that the vaccine is the savior. And so if there's one topic that was more sensitive than any others during this period, even more sensitive than speaking against lockdowns, I think it's been speaking against the population-wide uh, rollout of these vaccines and the social coercion and economic coercion placed upon people to get these vaccines, because those, those messages were motivated by politics, and the politicians do not want anybody to actually interrogate the efficacy of those decisions because it will make them look like like they like like the, the people they are which is you know supporting a political narrative rather than supporting public health with their health decisions yeah i'm like a kid in a candy store right now with what you've just said because <laughs> there, <was, laughs> there was a lot in there um the the one thing I, I quickly wrote down was why do i need to get my information from dr john campbell in the united kingdom about excess deaths in australia and why, why is it that his videos on these topics are getting a million plus hits and I haven't seen it at all in the media? Um, yep. The other thing that I wrote down is um, remember Dr. Karen Felt's tweet. So during one of your recent, more recent appearances on Q&A, um, she wrote about, she actually wrote a tweet in that nobody spoke about or addressed. And for those that don't know, um, Dr. Karen Phelps was um, the director of the Australian Medical Association um, uh, first female, and she was also a member of um, parliament. Um, and her and I believe her partner um, were um, vaccine injured. And one of the things that I think has been the most insidious things for me to watch um, when I think about uh, normally how compassionate and empathetic Australians are to each other, it's one of the things we're famous for in the cliched mateship way, is how people who have had any sort of reaction from the vaccine have been completely gaslit as if you take an aspirin and it's accepted that you can have a side effect from that if you're not if you're susceptible but you take this experimental vaccine and there's no way that you can possibly have something and i think this is actually one of the the saddest things about the the um not just, um, I believe 100% what you said about the excess, excess deaths in regards to just that, the, the, um, the effect of being locked down. I mean, I have a part-time job in the service industry and I served a lady uh, at the end of last year who was visiting from Victoria. And she literally, she was an older lady. She's probably in her 70s. She was Italian. And she came up to me and she was just, she said, I'm so overjoyed. I've been let out of prison. And she hasn't been in prison. She just lived in Victoria and she was older. She was vulnerable. And so her family and the government locked her up. And she ended up in tears because she was just so happy to finally after, at this point, I said to her, it's been two and a half years. And she said, yes, but my family wouldn't let me travel. Yeah. Um, these things are travesty because as I think um, you've pointed out, you know, it's not just about saving lives, but it's also about years of life and the quality of those years of life. Mm, and when I think absolutely. about the kids, when I think about healthy young people, when I mm -hmm. think about like even just myself graduating with a PhD online during lockdown. Yeah, <laughs> it was, no. It's, it's uh, it was actually, it was quite a funny experience because I got <laughs> dressed in a suit thinking that it was going to be live, 
but it was actually just a recorded video. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, no, I mean, look, you're absolutely right. And so many different groups got hurt in so many different ways that were simply not being accounted for or predicted or expected by the people making these policies. And we, we didn't hear about those costs. This is exactly what we do in the in the cost benefit analysis of, of Australia's lockdowns with that I wrote with Sanjeev Sablok, who was an ex-Victorian treasury economist. If you remember from 2020, he parted ways with the treasury because he disagreed with the policies. And I was very fortunate to be able to pick him up as a research assistant for that book. Um, and essentially, we go through all the various categories of costs and try to make our best estimates of what they are in the short run and the long run and try to compare them to a generous estimate of the benefits of lockdowns and border closures. But going back to your, your point about the vaccines, I, I completely agree about the inhumanity of not uh, not acknowledging that there has been a great pain here. It's incredibly sad, but more than that, this is something, this is an issue that I think is one of the, I mean, in, in an ironic twist of fate and tragic twist of fate is one of the phenomena that will most assist in the reformation drive post COVID because people will not be able to get over the this kind of damage that we're seeing from these vaccines to themselves, to their parents, to their children. Um, if we start finding that children who were born to vaccinated mothers or children who themselves were vaccinated have fertility problems down the track, which we just won't know for a while, um, you know, that that will continue the pain into the next generation. And people, as these kinds of stories come out about vaccine injury, people who have any kind of physical problem who've been vaccinated will always wonder in the back of their mind, could it have been the vaccine? This is a, something you carry, right? You you carry this cost. You wonder if I go for a really hard run or a bike ride today, am I going to collapse from a heart attack, just like that airline pilot did, right? And and I think that's inevitable that because these things are so dangerous, the stories of damage and the and this the statistical analysis of the damage will continue to come out, and the anger associated with that kind of pain will fuel a desire to have a real reckoning of what happened during the COVID period. Um, and it may not serve full justice, but at least to have more of an acknowledgement of what was done than what we are currently seeing in Australia, which is an attempt at, at memory holding, basically, as you said previously, but also a drive to try to think about reforms that we could pursue as a country to minimize the chance that we ever have this kind of disaster befall us again. Yeah. And um, I just noted down that the questions around pregnancy, um, they shouldn't even be questions if the vaccine had passed through the standard or gold standard of testing. Um, it, it's just that it was rushed through in, in, in ex such, I think it was six months or um, maybe a year um, with some very invalid um, testing that was done. Um, and the extraordinary thing that we saw because I, I was wondering why we didn't see more medical um, doctors, nurses, and just medical staff in general coming out against the vaccine. Um, but again, I noticed that APRA um, released a statement in March um, 2020 um, forbidding anyone, um, actually 2021, I think it was, uh, forbidding anyone to question this because they didn't want to create a situation uh, where people were becoming vaccine hesitant. Yep. Um, and Yep. So in order to stop people from being vaccine hesitant, they effectively silence people because if they go against APRA, there is a risk that they will lose their jobs. 
Exactly. Oh, no, right. I put that kind of uh, significant coercion on the doctors and nurses. And there were some very good doctors who still continue to fight against the vaccine rollout, the mass mass vaccine rollout here in Australia by, for example, writing exemptions for young people um, and, you know, and, and trying that as much as they could to give real information out there. And by the way, if you were doing your research about these mRNA vaccines and, and the technology behind them, just as with COVID and its virulence early in 2020, you could find some of the actual research on this technology. And it was worrying. There was a reason why prior to COVID, we weren't using mRNA vaccines widely in human populations. We were using them really as last ditch Hail Mary pass possibilities for people who were really seriously ill because mm -hmm. it was known that there were some really significant side effects possible from animal studies. If you look at the animal studies of these of this technology, it doesn't look good. And I remember having a conversation about this with my father, who is like 90, he's going to be 92 in a few days um, early on in the pandemic. And you know, when we were first hearing about these vaccines, I said, Dad, these these things don't look that great. Like from me, from my perspective, if I were a doctor, I'd be looking at those animal studies and being like, this ain't good, you know, but he's 92 and he was male and he was surrounded by people over in the US who were essentially telling him that you've got to get the vaccine or you're going to die, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and so he he did get four now vaccines. And, and I, you know, I, th I think if anybody is going to benefit, I guess it's somebody like him. But on the other hand, he doesn't have that many comorbidities. And, and it is his choice. It's his body. It's his choice. But you see in those kinds of situations how influenced we are by the people around us. And I think that was also part of what was going on with the medical profession. So not just was APRA you know, coming down hard on doctors and nurses who would dare to question the vaccine savior story, but other doctors and nurses were applying social pressure, peer pressure to their colleagues, um, just as much as economists within my profession were, were doing that. I mean, I was defamed on Twitter by other economists, even though I'm not even on Twitter, you know, somehow that happened. And and it was a really a sight to behold, this kind of professional attempt, at least, to professionally shame people. And mm. I think, you know, it's it's most people are really, really so susceptible to that kind of pressure. For some reason, I'm not. I've, I've been, I mean, it's probably a bit of autism or something, but I just don't really mind if people disagree with me. I just want to have a conversation with them. I want to learn about their side of the story. Um, and if somebody calls me a, a neoliberal Trump cannot death cult warrior, then to me, that sounds Who more- you that? Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Media, I mean, I have a whole jar full of, of you know, of things I was called. But, but you know, hearing that from somebody else, what that makes me think is, geez, what's wrong with you, right? What's, mm. What is going on in your mind that you would call a fellow human being that epithet, right? And particularly when I know my own motivations are are in order to, I mean, I have no, I don't have grant money from anybody. You we were talking about this before the show. I've not applied to big grant bodies of any sort for years. I basically am funded by the Australian taxpayer. I don't have any skin in the game, right? So I know my motivations are to try to give policy recommendations that are in line with Australian welfare. And so to hear somebody, you know, assuming that I have a different motivation and so vitriolically mm. doing so tells me something about that person person tells me they have been they've got some emotion involved in what should be a, a cool headed objective discussion about what's the best thing for Australia to do. And mm. that's, you know, that's a that's a warning sign that the process of policymaking has been corrupted. And, and that's where I really think we need our uh, our reform efforts to be focused is how can we try to get better policymaking, that is policy that's in line with the interests of Australia as a whole, rather than in, in the interests of big big pharma, big companies, big big anything, and politicians um, and career bureaucrats, because that's where our policy has actually been, you know, directed in the COVID period, and we've seen that in stark relief. Mm. Um, 
Is that what's going through your mind when you're on programs like Q&A? Because one of the things I noticed is just how incredibly calm and articulate you remain under attack. Like for I, for example, when, I, when I'm under attack in particular, um, I blush quite red um, mm-hmm. and my voice starts to quaver and yeah. my thoughts get muddled. Um, yeah. I mean, particularly because let's be let's be fair, um, the particularly the program from July, um, Hamish McDonald's, um, I feel like his attitude towards you in parts was a little bit overly emotional. And mm. in fact, let's let's be clear, he called you or he accused you of advocating for death in Australia and that you were um, completely heartless. Um, and it's something actually um, that Sally McManus Um, also didn't say but implied back in your April appearance so I'm just astonished that you could just sit there so calmly and is that like have you been trained in that or are you thinking in your head this is them not me or were you prepared that that was actually going to occur and so you planned for it or yeah, I mean it's a really interesting question because I do think that not just I but but others in the resistance um, over these couple of years have often had that experience of being attacked directly. And, and those of us who have been most successful have somehow worked out a way to, to not be affected by those attacks as much as, as I think the average person. And I honestly, I don't know what it is. Like I said, I, I think it may be a bit of autism. I was a very lonely child. Uh, in, in childhood, I was an only child and I um, I was always, you know, the, the teacher's pet and I was always excluded from the popular girls group. I went to an all girls school for, for a number of years. And so I learned, I think, as a defense strategy to, um, instead of wanting to be included anymore in the groups, I satisfied myself with observing the groups, observing the behavior of the other girls, and seeing that as if through a microscope. You know, let me let me watch humanity as it as it behaves, as it unfolds, and and so that gave me a bit of protection from feeling rejected, certainly, but also, you know, they could say anything to me, basically. And I was kind of, oh, that's an interesting other observation. Let me write that down in my notebook, right? So I think that attitude of watching humanity and observing it and then commenting on it and and nonetheless feeling incredibly in love with humanity. Like I, I want the best for everybody. That is what I want, right? That's why I was drawn to economics in the first place. I, I want to get the best for everyone out of the scarce resources we have. So I don't have time to be ashamed or, or, or I don't know, to become a wallflower, I have to stand up for what's right, for God's sake, right? So I guess I've, I've, it's a combination of A, probably a bit of dysfunctionality that has, you know, been hardened into me over the years um, from, from childhood of just looking at humanity as if from, from afar, and then B, just a sense that, you know, we don't have time to be calling each other names. We've got to get the issues out there and we've got to find a solution to this problem. And and I, and I knew, as I said, you know, the whole time, it was so clear to me that basically my perspective should be heard. And because mm. I was speaking, not just for me, I was speaking for so many Australians who didn't have the opportunity to speak, you know, who, who just, who, who would write to me afterwards, after these appearances and say, thank you so much for giving me hope. And, you know, I mean, I received some of the most heartwarming, wonderful messages after these appearances that were extremely galvanizing for me. I thought, okay, I'm not crazy. I mean, I had done some sanity checking, of course, you know, with friends and family before going on, but you get those messages and you realize, right, okay, these people are not being heard. So we've got to get that 
perspective out there. So of course I'll say yes to any appearance, you know, invitation and, and just uh, try to have fun with it, which honestly I did. I mean, I found those experiences to be um, enervating, you know, energizing and, um, and, and productive. I felt good about having done them. And I, I look forward to more, like it's the sort of thing I enjoy doing is, is putting discussion out there about big policy issues. I think we should do more of it in Australia. And really, ABC Q&A could be a lot more than it is. <laughs> you know, I, I would like to have more kinds of forums that are actually longer length, um, have more diversity of thought and, and perspective at the table, because that's what we need. So I, so I don't know if I've answered your question, but there's a few things that go through my mind about why. Yeah, I, I think um, from a, someone that just occasionally views um, Q&A, there seems to be a, a, a narrative, a singular narrative a lot of group think, and I feel like there's often a, a token, um, often be someone maybe on the conservative side of politics or someone that's, um, you know, maybe a performer or a creative that seems to be at, at odds with just about everybody else. Um, yeah. But one, I think you answered my question because I was going to ask you why why go on Q&A, why write pub for um, publications like the Sydney Morning Herald but you, you answered that because it's important that the message gets out there and that people feel heard and people feel like their voice is being being recognised, an alternative voice to what was literally being shouted to us at the, at the time. I still don't quite understand how you could sit next to someone who claimed that... Um, there, that it was possible for there to be for coronavirus to be completely eliminated from Australia. <laughs> I know. Do you was remember that? Or? That was Bill Botel. I, it do was. That. I didn't yeah. want to. And I didn't was... want to be unprofessional by mentioning his name because he's, no, 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 he's still it's... a colleague. Of... Um, I honestly have never met him at UNSW. I think he's an oh, okay. adjunct. I um, mean, he's he's, some, he's not a former oh, professor. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, that never really came out. There was also a sixty minutes program that featured both him and me as well. Um, I, look, honestly, again, I just I look at that and I just say, okay, he's he's misguided, and I I need to try to reach him. That's that's my response. Yeah, to be a little bit controversial, is he misguided or is he captured? I only well, look, that. it's possible that yes, quite yeah. So it's a very good point, and I think you're exactly right. Some of the advocating for the mainstream narrative during COVID was certainly done because of capture. And that was clearly the case in scientific circles. It And, and you know, Bill Botel may be in that camp. I don't know. But I suppose that my first, and maybe this helps me, my, my first reaction to any human being is to treat them as a human being and, and uh, you know, treat them at face value when they say something. Okay, you really believe that? You personally, in your mind, you truly are committed to that? I assume they are because that's the way I operate, you know? So, and if I do have a conflict of interest, I'll disclose it and I'll I query it myself, or at least I try to, right? Try to be the best scientist I can. I mean, we're only human, but I try. Um, and so I guess that's that helps me because I don't immediately assume that the person who's, you know, saying something in line with the narrative is is basically just a bot, you know, who's <laughs> just yeah. trying to, to uh, you know, to parrot something for political reasons. It's quite possible that they are, but the best way to show that up is not to make the accusation, but to truly try to engage them. Again, I, I feel like that's the best way because the argument falls apart. If, mm. if, you, if you actually allow the discussion to happen, you know, it's like it's like the reason why economists advocate for competition, right? We want a lot of suppliers out there so that the bad ways of doing things get weeded out and the good ways of doing things survive. Same thing with bad ideas and good ideas. You want a, a an agora, a public space where all ideas can be aired and may the best ideas win and may the truest ideas win. We never get to truth, but we are always trying to pursue it. And we get there through dialogue, discussion, debate, experimentation, challenge. That's what science is about. There's no 
no one truth in science. There never has been and never will be. Um, that's 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 religion. That's not science. So so that's what we need, and that's why we need it because otherwise we don't progress. We just get stuck in some kind of static version of dogma rather than actually progressing our, our scientific approaches towards understanding the world, which improves ideally day by day, hour by hour, as we allow that kind of discussion and, and critique and challenge. So I guess it's just a, a, a commitment to that kind of model rather than the suppression and cancellation and, and um, sort of dogmatic model of discussion or of, of policymaking. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just want to, um, just as something that's a, a sidebar, um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but Hamish McDonald left um, Q&A because of his online harassment. Um, and I just made um, a point of just writing down here that often people in, the, particularly in the main, what we call the mainstream media, um, complain about being attacked online. Um, they refer to those people as bullies, brain dead, fascists, all types of things. Um, yet they they often completely blind when these attacks are directed at people they disagree with, mm. and what they're weaponizing now is the idea that online bullying is a justification for censoring. And I think that just plays into what you were saying just now: the importance of the public square and having multiple views. And there does seem to be. I'm not a full conspiracy theorist in this area, but there is certainly a tone right now of taking um, concepts such as inclusion and bullying and and using those to justify censorship of voices that are not necessarily like hate or, but just sometimes people they disagree with. I mean, yes. it's obviously happening, happening more in the United States, but whatever happens in the United States eventually happens here. So yeah, no, what this do you is think? Definitely true. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the other day on Q&A, on the 13th of March, we had a, a lady there uh, named Antoinette, who was a journalist and kind of diversity advocate. And what I found interesting about her commentary was that it, it embodied basically a, you know, a microcosm of exactly what you just said. So she was advocating very strongly for the um, provision of voice for people of color in policymaking. And this is this was the rationale for her support for the voice to parliament. Right. And she and Grant, Stan Grant had a bit of an exchange, you know, about how wonderful it was that we could now have voices of, of colored people, but that we needed a lot more of that and blah, blah, blah. But then, uh, you know, at the same time, in the same discussion, she was advocating for changing the words of a, a long dead author. Um, who happened not to be of color, but, you know, it could have been a person of color. I don't know. I mean, I don't think that her argument would have changed. And her advocacy of that kind of censorship was on the basis that um, it was going to be more inclusive for that person's voice to be silenced. So to me, this is very hypocritical because on the one hand, she's saying, I have to be able to be given full voice myself as a woman of color. And don't you, you know, other guys, you know, white people or men or whatever, try to shut me down. But then I'm going to shut down the people who have come before me by changing their words the way that I see fit based on what I perceive to be the social norms today. And so that that just seems completely um, in conflict to me. And I didn't really bring that out as uh, as much in relief as I could have on the show because I didn't want to cause more um, conflict than there already was. And we were I wanted to get other messages across. But mm -hmm. I think that that is a, a major issue right now with the woke movement. And as I said on the show, I think my objectives are very similar to the objectives that Antoinette and, and indeed Stan Grant and um, Billy Bragg would probably sign up to, which is we treat everybody like a human being. We treat everybody equally. But the idea that somehow we should point out 
all of the possible offenses that any one person or one word said by a person could cause and focus on divisions between people by race or by gender or by age or by anything else, you know, medical status, whatever, that, that that's somehow going to fix this problem that, you know, that we that we want to strive for a more equal and more equal opportunity society. I, I don't see the mechanism of action there. How is that kind of focus on sin and how other people are, you know, a danger or a threat are going to be triggering? How is that going to help us to progress to a better world? It's just going to make us hate each other, hate ourselves, if we're white and male, particularly, and and basically lose confidence and, and, and not collaborate with other people and be creative and open and feel safe, right, to be able to, to work together. So I just don't see how that's connected. And similarly with other issues, you have the issue of the, of the climate change agenda, for example. Um, COVID was like this as well, where you know, there's a promised future benefit, which is not really very well quantified. It comes out of computer simulations. And we are all told that in order to get this supposed benefit somewhere in the future, which is somewhat nebulous, but apparently huge, we all have to self-flagellate today. Well, you know, no, I'm not not all of... just generally just the most vulnerable in society. <laughs> exactly. Most <laughs> mostly it is the most vulnerable in society. That's very true. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you have to ask yourself, does this pass the cost benefit test? So this is what I ask myself as an economist. And I, it's not that I have a prior either way, but I would want to see the benefits just as I did with COVID. And, you know, and if they're just a simulation result, then, you know, frankly, I don't think that's that reliable because we've seen in COVID simulations can deliver extremely far off predictions like predictions 40, 40 that million. that's it 40 million yeah. was the initial figure right that's right and yeah yeah three years later we haven't even gotten above 10 million i think right so it's it's sort of wow you know if, if we're really going to be basing huge sacrifices today on a promised benefit that a computer simulation gives us you know maybe we shouldn't have the computers how about we put the computers to sleep and just think about this problem you know think about how we can help the earth think about how we can adapt to climate change if it is happening um, in certain areas, particularly with rising sea levels. I mean, there clearly is going to be human effects of, you know, there are going to be effects on our lifestyles of mm. a changing climate. What can we do to help people with that? And, and what can we do to clean up the earth in various ways locally where we can see that there's an effect? I mean, the acid rain uh, policies of the 80s is a really good example. It was clear that we were having acid rain. We did something about that. We imposed policies. We had cap and trade emissions, and we really did make progress on that issue similarly with cleaning up plastics out of the ocean you know there are plenty of things we can do that are good for the earth and again when you talk in this way sometimes people say oh well you know if you're not for mitigation and net zero and reducing carbon footprints and all the rest then it means that you hate the earth right and you're gonna you want everybody to die right you don't respect our mother that's not it at all right i mean the objectives are very similar it's just that i think more about the mechanism of action and I think we all should, because that's the scientific approach. It's not a religious approach. It's a scientific approach. These decisions should be made by a scientific approach rather than by a dogmatic approach, which mm. will lead to great destruction and, and for probably very little benefit. Yeah. Another good example um, of um, coming together for the climate was in the 80s when they banned CFCs. Yes, exactly. Was, I think that the main difference in, in that particular case was where it was proved um, beyond a doubt that it was um, dissolving the ozone layer. Yep. But very quickly, very quickly, within 18 months, they, they were banned and across across the planet. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to say about this, this increased censorship is just how much um, it might be drawing a long straw. But um, when before the US forces went into Iraq, 
one of the main things that they did um, before they invaded was to raid all of the art galleries and all of the museums and take all of the artifacts out of Iraq. They literally did that before they sent in the military. That's how important it was to find um, pieces of art and works of art that were old and to move them mm. because they knew that not just in the war, they also did the same in parts of Afghanistan and across other parts of the Middle East because they knew that if the Taliban or whoever was to go in, that they would destroy those works and they understood how important those works were. No one at any point has questioned or asked for those pieces of work to be updated to the modern modern sensibility so that they do it with books but with artwork and structures and and statues it's um it seems it's quite different but um yeah maybe that's a long straw but no no i don't think it's a long straw at all i think it shows that at least at that point we were still respecting um the the, the need to preserve what has come before so that we can study it and, and learn from it and progress beyond it potentially yeah and and literature is part of that absolutely you got to be able to see the progress across society because it's not just about um i think that maybe you've made this point but it's not just about us here and now it's about people in the future that look back um and and study these things and the other thing that i just wanted to touch on because i just realized the time has just completely flown by um Mm -hmm. this has been fun and so uh oh yes the important point about um uh, your last appearance on q a which was just last week i've noted down that um your your fellow panelists dismissed you when you were discussing the obvious role that government COVID policies have had in causing considerable damage to the economy and to individual households, not just in terms of economics, but also in terms of health. I'm just, I'm, I'm flabbergasted as to how they can um, dismiss that. And the, the thing that really blew my mind was then after they dismissed you on that point, Stan Grant turned to Billy Bragg and literally said, and I quote, you guys have been through a bruising time with runaway inflation and people in the UK wondering if they can heat my house or do I eat? And we've got a growing wealth gap around the world as well. So, I mean, how tone deaf are these people to the everyday lived reality of Australian families if they can express empathy and compassion for the UK but refuse to see what's happening right in front of his face? And I believe he dismissed you offhand by saying house prices are coming down. Well, I think he needs to step outside of the inner suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne, (laughs) who have seen a slight adjustment, which they're now recovering from. Um, I just found that just, yeah, I found it very elitist, actually, to make that comment, um, particularly in comparison with what's going in the UK. Yes, no, I've. I think it's a combination of forces that um, promote that, that provoke that kind of reaction from Stan um, and from other people as well. First of all, there's the great desire to memory hole the entire COVID policy debacle because of the fact that in some way, shape or form, many, many people in Australia were complicit with furthering it, right? They, they took part in promoting this agenda. And so to actually come to terms with the fact that that agenda is in large part what has caused our economic woes today would mean accepting responsibility, at least in part, for that damage. And, you know, today, one of the, one of the most hated and feared um, 
things is responsibility, right? And accountability, right? We have a crisis of cowardice, widespread cowardice in leadership, cowardice in the fourth estate, cowardice so many places uh, in, in people's personal lives. And, and so, you know, there's a huge psychological pressure to, to just forget about the whole thing. So that's that's the one big thing. Secondly, I think, you know, there are other factors that of course have been brought up as replacements for why, you know, why are we having this economic uh, crisis today? And because of the desire to forget about COVID policy, there's a very quick um, finding of those factors. And you saw that with Antoinette's comment about, oh, you know, government housing policy, let's blame the government, but not for COVID policy, right? Mm -hmm. Not for that, just for the, for the housing policy stuff. And yes. of course, you know, she is correct that there are some structural problems with housing in Australia. And I've been talking about that way before COVID as well. And, you know, I agree with her on a couple points there, but again, in the broad scheme of, of the, the, the economic picture today, the biggest responsibility is laid at the feet of the narrative, which promoted the policy choices that we ended up having. And, and I agree with you about the elitism. It's quite ironic as well that Stan Grant and, and Antoinette are there on, you know, one of the nation's top viewed Q&A, you know, is, is, is a very, very popular program. They have been successful as people of color. And, you know, then to say, oh, well, you know, uh, the, the, you know, I don't I don't know whether it's really true. You know what's going on in the, in the you know, the households, the, the poor households. I mean, there's a lot of feigning of care there, but I don't reckon that. I mean, you know, there was the Margaret Thatcher, I think, who said something like, you know, do you know how much a stick of butter costs? You know, when when discussing with the you know, parliamentarians or somebody about whether they really understand the economic crisis that is hitting households, I don't know whether some people who are, you know, regardless of their skin color, who are pundits and have been setting policy during this whole COVID period and are still in charge today, really understand the kind of situation economically that the the, the lower half of income distribution of, of people here in Australia are facing. I mean, the you know, how much does a stick of butter cost? Do they know? I don't know. Um, you know, and that's and again. That's something that it, it grates on me because, you know, I mean, it's not that I am particularly, uh, you know, disadvantaged at all. I've had a wonderful ride. I have an incredibly, you know, supportive, wonderful family. I've got a very secure position, I hope. I hope that the university doesn't fire me. They've been very good so far. Um, and so I can't, I cannot claim to live every day the reality that people at the other end of the distribution are living. But do I see it as my responsibility to advocate for them? Yes, because this is, I mean, half of the people in Australia are, are earning below the median of, or, you know, of, of, it's like, how can you not care about those people if these are the people who are paying your salary? And these are the people to whom the, the you know, the, the benefits and from whom the costs are being directed, uh, you know, uh, during COVID and every other policy that we make. And so I, I just feel a great sense of responsibility there. And again, that that responsibility is something we that's really rare in the in the country today. And that's one of the things we should be trying to elevate for our leaders and expect more from our leadership. Yeah, it is. It's increasingly rare today. Um, and what it does is, um, again, policies around climate change and inclusion are important. Um, but it actually makes um, the everyday pain and suffering of everyday Australians invisible. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the COVID example highlighted that starkly, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but um, the lowest 20% of earners in Australia, so people most likely to be living in poverty, were three times more likely to die from COVID than those in the top 20% of yep. society. That, that is a stark statistic that I have not seen replicated. I'm not sure if I got that from one of your websites or one of your writings, but um, 
I have not seen that before. No, I, absolutely. I, I literally just found that 48 hours ago when I was researching for today and I was yep. astonished that I haven't seen that before and I was astonished that people haven't mentioned that. Um, because, oh, because it doesn't go along with the narrative, right? I mean, again, COVID, COVID policies have been unbelievably regressive and, and not just here within Australia. So don't even get me started on what's happened in the developing world because of our policies in the developed West. We have, have jettisoned another 200 million people to the brink of, of um, hunger and, and poverty because of our policies. And, and that's just, you know, an unfathomable amount of additional human suffering that we have directly caused. Now, that is something that traditionally a lot of people who are advocating or have advocated for COVID policies would think is a bad thing. Mm. So to point that out is, is again, it, it's a direct affront to the the logic of the narrative, which, of course, doesn't really exist. It isn't logical. Right. But the but the narrative as as portrayed, which is this is good for us is simply not supported by facts like that, you know, and, and think about the business side as well. The COVID restrictions, the, the social distancing requirements, all of the various sanitizing and all that other stuff, who is going to be able to bear those costs? It's the big businesses, not the small and medium-sized enterprises, not the mom and pops. So plenty of people who had thriving businesses before COVID, small businesses, are now, they're not out of business and they're probably never going to reopen. And they're having to switch industries, switch careers, and nobody cares, right? That's the sense that they will have. Have. nobody cares about what happened to me and and it's the poor people who cannot afford to stay at home and work on their laptops for a secure job they have to be the delivery guy you know you're going to sit at home and have your groceries delivered who's going to deliver those groceries you know what an elitist i mean what, the, what and the idea of labeling some people's jobs inessential as well i mean how, what an insult right so yeah. elitism has permeated the covid policy making during this time and we have ended up with a more regressive world a more a more unequal world and unfortunately, that is set to continue because those kinds of inequalities take a while to recover from. We were making progress against global inequality and against poverty in general. And we've been set back probably 10 years because of COVID policies. And, and that's just it's it's a complete disgrace. And you're right. We don't hear about it in Australia. Uh, it's I, well, you could say so much more about that if you think mm. about the whole world and the effects that we've had in the whole world uh, and how much has been spent. I mean, it's something like the G7 alone have spent something like six point seven billion uh, trillion dollars i believe it is on COVID policy you know mitigation measures and stuff beyond what they were predicting to spend before COVID came on the scene if you think about what we could have achieved with that amount of money in terms of actually lifting the welfare of human beings on this planet oh my gosh right i mean yeah. the mind boggles with the amount that you could do that's more than the gdp of most countries you know it's just astounding that people don't ask that question you know what's the opportunity cost of having spent that quantity of cash on basically just treading water and spinning a political narrative exactly and transfer of wealth upward is unprecedented yep. in our time just before you go i wanted to just give you a, a quick moment because um on q a last week you did mention um the the tweets uh, sorry the um the whatsapp messages that had been um leaked from mm -hmm. former uk health minister matt hancock and that, again, that was that that statement was completely ignored. So I just wanted to give you the opportunity um, to just quickly, if you can, um, just talk about what what they said and why um, the Australian media has largely dismissed it as tabloid. Yeah. And well, I mean, I mean, if you if you're going to dismiss the the UK Health Secretary's uh, communications to his team during the the crisis of COVID policy as tabloid, then I guess you're just saying that all of the stuff that that people are communicating about in power in 
moments of crisis is is tabloid. I mean, I, it's it's I don't, I don't think that's true, right? Necessarily, I think there's a lot more than tabloid to it. In fact, it's extremely revealing of the realities that this guy was facing and how he actually handled it and the kind of tone and the kind of objectives that were being pursued by the policies. And to me, that's the big lesson is that, uh, you know, this is just con confirmation really of my um, deductions previously that COVID policymaking was made for political reasons, not for reasons of health promotion. And you see in those messages, um, messages like, you know, you know, we have to scare the pants off everybody. We have to make sure that they're, you know, that, they're, that they really fear this thing so that they'll accept such and such or such and such. That's not how is that helping people? You know, how is that actually promoting their health? Isn't it? It was one of the the, the great U.S. Uh, leaders of of yesteryear who said something like, oh, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I always forget whether it was Roosevelt or, or Kennedy or Eisenhower. One of those great guys, right, said essentially exactly what we should have been taking to heart at the beginning of COVID, which is that fear itself is bad. If you want to make a good decision, stop being scared as the first step. You know, it's like when you're out in the, you know, in the in the cold and the wet and the wind, and you you're wondering where you're, you know, how you're gonna be able to survive. The first thing you do is get out of the wind. Okay, I remember my father telling me that he'd been, you know, trained from the army. Okay, what do you do when you're making a big policy decision? The first thing you do, reduce emotion. And fear is a very powerful emotion. And you need to reduce that, not just amongst the policymakers themselves, but amongst the population. So that should have been what the governments went for, and they didn't. And you see that very clearly in the WhatsApp messages. Uh, I think it's just an insult to the people of the UK that this was handled in that in that fashion. And I think we should we are going to be seeing a lot more from uh, from that leak. And I uh, congratulate the journalists who decided to leak that on behalf of the welfare of the, of the UK population. Mm, and I will just say that I, I find it incredibly sad and revealing that the person who was responsible for the leak is being pillied um, in the, the UK press. For yep. me, um, the main thing that I got from the leak was it just highlighted exactly what you were saying just before about there's one um, COVID experience for the elites and then there's the COVID experience for everybody else. It was yeah. just his attitude and his tone that was coming through, which I just find, of course, he's British private school educated but that's yeah. no excuse the way that he was talking was clear that they were just yeah, yeah. they yeah, had the same yeah. research that you had in March 2020 they knew what the deal was mm -hmm. um yeah yeah so, anyway Professor Foster thank you so much for today it was fun time went too quickly unfortunately <laughs> that's um, fine. Hopefully, thank you, hopefully we can do it again soon thank you so much thanks for having me on Victor thank you